Delighted to be joined today by Dr. Ian Sherwin. Ian is a lecturer in coaching in the University of Limerick. We had a really enjoyable conversation, could have gone on for hours, but we spoke about empowering athletes and providing a safe environment. We talked about probing your athletes for consequences through the use of questions, and also about not being too proud to learn from other sports or coaches. Really enjoyable one. I took loads from it. I hope you do too. As always, you can subscribe to the Coaching Bubble podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. And you can keep up to date with all things Coaching Bubble on social media at Bubble Coaching. Ian, thanks a million for coming on. Great to have you. Uh, we've been, you've been on the hit list for a while. Um, so I want to jump in around your work um, in coach behavior. So you've done an awful lot of, of research and, and, and practical research around uh, studying coach behavior and helping people actually change how they coach and improve how they coach. So I was wondering if you could maybe give us a bit of background of how you got involved in that side of things and, and what it is you actually did. Thanks very much, Stephen. Really nice to be here. Appreciate the invitation to contribute uh, to this podcast. Um, I suppose the first area that really fascinated me uh, was about how people coach um, and how people get into coaching and how they learn about coaching. And, and this was uh, this was something that uh, kind of resonated with me. Uh, I had coached uh, for a long time, um, almost 30 years I was coaching, um, and I had coached at a high level um, up to uh, Munster A level when I was working with the, the Munster team. And yeah, I, I was always felt that I just needed to to learn more about how to coach, and I, I felt that when I got into uh, back to college um, to look at my research and restart the research, I wanted to look outside of uh, the rugby domain, which is where I was most familiar with, and what I could learn from other people and how other people coach. So what I did for my research was I went and visited other coaches coaching and I recorded them. I put a microphone on them and I listened to what they said and how they said it. And I followed them for the course of a whole season. And I looked at them in training and in um, competition and in matches. Uh, so it was really interesting to see that the contrast between uh, the very planned out sessions that they had and then the uncertainty of what happens during a match and looking at the different behaviors and how it impacted the athletes. But what was really interesting about it was we talked to the athletes as well. And we looked at now this research was done with male athletes uh, and, and male coaches. Um, that's just the way it ended up, uh, despite our, our recruitment. But um, we got feedback from the athletes on how the coaches were coaching and how the coaches made them feel. And this was really interesting because what we did was after we recorded the coach in the session, I would do an analysis on the coach and behavior. Um, and there are set templates that go back from uh, to the 1970s uh, in early coach observation. Um, it's based off teacher education uh, that was done way back in the, in the last century, uh, but adopted primarily into sports coaching um, in the 70s and then 80s. And it became more and more refined over time. But we were using a set template of behaviors uh, and we would observe the coaches whether it's positive or negative without getting into sorry go ahead yeah yeah no because this is really interesting and i think people will be very interested in in sort of what sort of behaviors you were looking for what like what's so you're saying positive or negative but like is there varying degrees of positive is there varying degrees of negative obviously roaring and shouting at someone is is probably going to be in the negative category but um I suppose there must be different sort of shades of that. Yeah, and this was the, the positive and negative was kind of a, a very crude way to describe it. Um, if you looked at the early systematic coach observation templates, um, there's a, a template called the CBAS, the Coach Behaviour Assessment Scale, and that dealt with 12 different behaviours. Uh, a more recent one uh, from, that was from the 70s, a more recent one from 2012, uh, was uh, the coach assessment inventory system. And that actually deals with 23 different behaviours at four or five different levels. But the behaviours that are, are really common relate to feedback and questioning. So how you give feedback, when you give feedback, what type of feedback you give, and can you give feedback through questioning? So questioning is a really important aspect of coaching. So you try to give 
to frame your questions to your athletes so that you're actually making them think and providing them a platform where they can actually solve the, the questions by themselves or, or solve the answers uh, by themselves. So for example, in this, you try to avoid questions to your athletes. Uh, was that a good pass? That's a yes or a no answer. Whereas you could just say, what was good about that pass? And the athlete then has to think about a particular, what do they do? Well, do they put the ball into space? Do they give the pass at a certain rate that the, the, the intended receiver could do something with it? Or was the intended receiver focusing on so much on the scale of, of catching the pass? So you want to try and get them to think about what they're doing. Um, Sometimes coaches really struggle with that because coaches have such an unbelievable knowledge about the game that the temptation is always just to jump in and tell the players what to do or the athletes. And, and this works in both team and individual sports. So the behaviors that we're, we're trying to look at is how supportive the coach can be in improving the athlete. And a, a huge amount of that comes back to the empowerment and giving athletes responsibility. Uh, to make their own decisions because at the end of the day when you get into into the performance environment and i'm not talking about high performance i'm talking about the competition the match days you're not on the pitch or you're not on the track or you're not on the court uh, the athletes are and they need to be able to take responsibility and actually make the decisions uh, under pressure and competition so to, Practice is about facilitating that decision-making process and, and allowing athletes the, the space and time to make those decisions and, and problem solve. So those behaviours that we're trying to look at in what promote those, um, those autonomy supportive decisions uh, for the athlete um, are the type of feedback, the environment uh, that is encouraging, it's safe, there's a trust, mistakes, are not frowned upon their errors are in a way of learning for example um so it's how the, the coach facilitates that uh, adventure and sense of um, embracing the chaos and i, I know uh, at least one of your your previous guests liam Morgan, would always um testify to that is to embrace the chaos and allow the order to come out of uh, the chaos by letting the players um, or the athletes solve the problems themselves. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, and it's not just Liam that say that. A, a lot of the guests would talk about that. And uh, I think he summed it up nicely there in terms of uh, how you want to to let them... Like, they're the ones that are going to be out and playing. They're the ones when running the race or whatever it may be. So you can't give them the answers then. So if you do it in training, you're going you're gonna to hamper them potentially. You talk... I want to touch on the questioning there. You said, can you ask the right question? I, I fell into this mistake an awful lot in, in my early coaching career where I would have nearly asked and answered the question. So I would be, I'd be asking the question because I knew that was the right thing to do, but I'd nearly be answering it or it nearly sometimes even be a rhetorical question, if that makes sense. And in my head, I was ticking the box that I was, questioning but at the same time i wasn't really i wasn't using effective questioning so could you talk about that a bit more and maybe give us some examples of of what an effective question could be in 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 that context one of the things that uh we looked at quite closely um and again the idea of questioning is to make the players think so uh i understand exa exactly what you're talking about in terms of uh, answering your own question um there were there was a, a nice example and i'll give it to you from a team sports perspective but i think people could probably uh create the sequence of questions in any in any uh domain that they have themselves but one of the things um that a coach might do was uh he might stop a stop a, a point the the training session or the play in time uh and kind of say Stephen. Uh, did you not see Johnny on on your left and Tony on your right and the keeper was off his line and you still shot wide? Um, like, that's crazy. You know, let's do it again. And the other way that you could actually look at that exact situation is uh, Stephen, who was on your left, and there's a recall and a recognition going on in the player's head. And he said, OK, Tony was on the, on the left and said, who is the defender in front of you? And you, you kind of think, OK, I have to recognize the defender. 
with a defender and you probably tweak in the player's mind, okay, well, that player was there, that defender was in that position. I'm actually faster than that defender. I might take a different decision. And where was the goalkeeper? Did you see the goalkeeper? So the player may not have looked at this situation um, in training or you're, you're not giving them the opportunity. So the next time the player is in that situation, the player will be mindful of who's on either side of them in a support position. Who is the defender? Is it a fast guy? Is it a slow player? What decision do I have to make? Or I know Stephen is on one side or Tony's on the other side and they have, they're going to go into space. So it'll influence the decision. But what the question is doing is it's stimulating some thought that I'm going to have to look at different things to make my decision. And if I looked at and saw that the goalkeeper was off their line in the first place, all I had to do was put the ball over their, over their head in the first place. So there's all these different um, factors that you're, you're asking the player to try and stitch these pieces of information together to make the right decision. If you don't ask the questions and you just tell them, then the player, it, it won't register as much. And you just you can go through these different situations over and over again. But there's there's a lovely sequence to the question about probing for uh, consequences of particular events that the, that the athlete might do. There is what are the consequences if I do this? Uh, what is the outcome over here? What's your opinion on what what we should do in this situation? So you can ask for all these sequence of questions that will get the athletes to think. And then the next time they're faced with that situation, they'll be more familiar with it because they came up with the answers themselves. As coaches just telling the athletes what to do doesn't always work. Yeah, I, I really like that probing for consequences um, uh, uh, analogy you just gave there. So you explained that really, really simply. And in my head, I'm like, yes, absolutely. But I imagine to do this effectively that there's quite a bit of practice first of all but also planning would you have would you what are you talking about prepper preparing what type of questions for what you're planning in a training session and preparing from that yeah i i, I think that's right it it's really it's a really interesting concept uh and this was something that uh i asked the coaches because when I initially went out and started recording the sessions, what we did was we, we analyzed these different behaviors and we then played the clips back to the coaches the next day and just kind of said, you know, wh what were you thinking in this situation? And there was a nice series of questions that the first thing that um, the coaches were a bit surprised at was hearing themselves um, on, do I really sound like that coaching? So they don't listen to themselves. But we got to the stage where we, we kind of talked about planning and how they actually what, what they put in their plan and what series of questions or what questions they wanted to ask players. It's it's really good to have just some pre-prepared questions for situations that you might actually face in a training session. It takes a while. Like, like anything, good questioning and practicing good questioning will take time to develop. Um, I suppose like like anything worth doing it will take time to perfect and and get used to doing um it doesn't just happen overnight the asking the the open questions uh and realizing that okay i could very easily give you the answer it's much more uh time efficient i'll just give you the answer and do it but in the longer term it's not going to work for you after you have spent some time developing your questioning and your questioning routine it will become second nature and, and you won't have to prepare for it very much like you were doing preparing your players for situations in a, uh, in a, in a game by asking them these series of questions. You can actually prepare yourself um, for really good coaching practice by practicing your, your questioning uh, in particular orders and in particular situations that you know will help the players. So, yeah, it takes time to develop. It takes time to practice. And you'll find yourself using tell me, describe, explain, rather than uh, did you do that? Did you look this way? Uh, or why didn't you look that way? Which was a which is a rhetorical question. You want to try and ask questions that don't have a yes or a no or, or a rhetorical question. You you want to ask a question that is how could you do that better? Why did you do this? So th these are the questions that are probing for for um, answers from the players. But it does take time to develop. 
Yeah. And can I ask then, is this, was this something that uh, you found? Cause I know you were, that some of the coaches you were working with would have been at a, at a, a fairly high end. So was this something that you found that the best coaches did or was it still a case where you had to pull them up or w- what other type of behaviors did you find with them? So that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Um, one of the things that, that I said at the start was about stepping into a different environment that you weren't really sure about and, and observing coaches. I tried to get all the coaches at the, at the same level. So they were at the, the highest level of, club competition uh, in different sports in the country. And I, I was amazed at the, the quality of the coaches. Uh, one coach was, it was absolutely automatic. The, the calmness in the delivery of the feedback to players, of the questioning, and without doubt, a sequence of uh, that sequence, that example that I gave you earlier on was almost a carbon copy of, of what that coach was doing absolutely in a sequence of what ifs and almost leading the player to the solution but but not um and he was doing it automatically um the benefit that that coach got out of um hearing themselves on on the recording uh was maybe one or two situations where he wouldn't ask so many questions and sometimes, and as you mentioned too earlier on, or mentioned earlier on, there might be a danger of just asking questions for the sake of it as, as ticking the box. And there are some stages when you can probably skip um, along the sequence of questions where you don't need to ask every single question. The player may give you the answer uh, sooner than you think. And, and that's absolutely fine. Um, and that's what this coach found. Some of the coaches were, uh, some of the coaches didn't ask the questions. Um, and... When I asked, maybe not when I asked, but when I observed about uh, the, the questioning or the, giving them feedback on the types of behaviours and, and there wasn't a, a lot of questions, the feedback from the coach was, um, this is not the way these players want to do it. Um, they actually just think, look, there's a big group of us here if we spend so much time asking questions, then uh, we're not going to get anything done. So you you kind of got to understand the culture of the environment in which you're working. But there is also uh, a time and a place for um, not asking questions just for the sake of it. So uh, there were times in particular sessions when there weren't too many sessions, there weren't too many questions. But uh, when you scratch a bit deeper, apart from the players, just actually wanting to take ownership and control of the session themselves, then that's the autonomy support that the coach is giving anyway. So we want to actually manage this and you don't need to step in here asking us questions. Let the flow of the session go and, and we'll keep it going and managing ourselves. But to give you, a, to put that in context, if this was a final uh, pre-match preparation session where the players might actually want to go through a couple of uh, plays on on a field where the execution doesn't have to be perfect for the outcome still to be achieved. The coach doesn't need to step in and tell them they made a mistake. They knew they made a mistake or asked them why it happened. They know why, they know how, and they know how to fix it. But if the coach keeps stepping in, it'll interrupt the flow and they won't be able to do that in a match. So the players actually stepped up and take responsibility for that too, which was really nice. Um, So questions actually weren't needed uh, in some sessions. Yeah, no, but it sort of makes perfect sense in though, the way you've just like the last 10 minutes or so, as we've been chatting, if you phrase your questions in the right way, you get players thinking in a certain way, you get them, you empower them and you get them sort of trying to figure the stuff out themselves and nearly before the question comes, which means you don't have to use as many questions. So if you get that sort of culture in early and, and, and as best as you possibly can at the start, you should be on a on a really strong foundation to build. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it it's it's what you do in the training sessions that allows you to actually, when you get onto to match day or performance day or the competition day or whatever it is, um, you'll understand and trust is a huge thing uh, between the coach and the athlete. Um, so 
everything that you do in, in practice is to develop the, the athletes for the performance environment. Um, so when you're hopping up and down on the sideline uh, during a competition uh, or in-game, uh, you don't have the same control or ability to plan for that the lack of uncertainty because you have a whole team trying to upset your perfectly laid plans. So you, there may be this temptation to actually jump in and say, did you see number number seven is is playing too wide here? Why don't you go through that gap? And I used to do that. And the word had come back. Yeah, yeah, we saw that. We're waiting for the right opportunity. So the, the players actually see this. So it, it's what we build up in, in training to actually facilitate that um was actually it, it was kind of really nice and then i kind of thought why am i even talking to these guys they they know what they're at you know so um yeah uh, it's it's what you do in practice i think is uh, really helps on on match day for the decision making and the autonomy for the players yeah i heard um the all blacks coach um give an interview before and and he he talked about a conversation that he had with um one of his his captains, I can't remember the context, but he basically said um, that the the captain or the the player, the senior player, came up, put his arm around them, and said, "Coach, you spend all week building us up to make our own decisions and to be empower us to play and 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 do all that on the pitch, and then you stand up ten minutes before the game and give us a team talk. Maybe you should rethink that a little bit." And he said, "It just." The, the the penny dropped and he he's never given a team talk before a match since you know so uh it's it's really interesting like to think that you're nearly it makes perfect sense that you want to hand the, the, the you want to empower the players to make all the right decisions but at the same time you're nearly trying to hand that power over from yourself not that you become obsolete but it's a it's a hard concept to get around in your head maybe as a, as a head coach yeah, and you know this is—it's—it's it's really interesting. I, that's a great example, um, and it—it was—it it was so interesting to hear that how that coach had got all the way through his career, and like this guy was—he was a teacher, had a teaching background as well, and he's at the at the top end of the top end of rugby, and the player says this to him, and it hadn't even dawned on him before, and you kind of think, wow, yeah. Who's this for? Why, why am why am I doing this talking? <laughs> okay, I don't need to do this anymore. This is the, the players, uh, the players' time, and and that's the big thing. So, but everybody, that's about I suppose it's about tradition. This is what was always done, um, and it it takes the players to actually say that. But it wasn't a great that the captain was able to to say that to the coach, you know, in in that environment at the top end that. It's, you know, that was a trust and relationship that they had built, that everything was open and it was it was accepted um, yeah. in other places. It mightn't have been. So, yeah, yeah it was it, it was great. It ties really nicely back to the point you made earlier about creating that safe environment that people can feel safe to express themselves. Um, I want to ask one more thing about the coach behaviors, because I, I think it's really interesting. Did you find much on body language as part of that feedback, Aim? Uh, because again, I have been, uh, uh, my hands are up here myself in terms of, uh, I might be saying one thing, but my body language is, is telling a different story altogether. And I'd say an awful lot of people can relate. So especially people who are coaching kids teams, as in they're saying the right thing, but at the same time, you're like, I cannot believe he missed that open goal type of thing. If that makes sense. So any tips for us here? Joe, you know, this is this is actually really funny. Um, so I had the uh, camera focused on the coach to just get their um, their verbal, their communication, their body language, uh, and I had the mic on them. So we had the the actions with the words, um, and we didn't we didn't connect it to um, what was going on on the pitch, but we could tell exactly what was going on on the pitch by the reactions of the, of the coach. And it, it was actually, when I showed these reactions to the coaches, they they don't even remember doing it. And that that's the really hard part. It's almost an automatic decision. And again, this takes practice. This takes um, training 
to how can I regulate my emotions? You don't want to be standing on the sideline now in, in, in games and absolutely stone-faced and nothing nothing features. That's not what sport's about. You can show emotion, but there, there are times about what emotions you see and there is this whole shaking of the head and you kind of think, oh, well, can, can the intended recipient see you and, and all that kind of stuff? And there is the hopping up and down going crazy, but... It is the practice and very much like you're coaching your athletes to deal with particular situations and recognize certain situations that would come up in a match. You know, as a coach, there are certain situations that you're going to face and how am I going to control? And I was actually given a presentation uh, or a talk to some coaches recently, and, and I asked them this question and everybody says, breathe. Quite simply, when you see that situation come, Take a deep breath and count to five or count to ten. And, and then the emotion may actually disappear or the emotion can be more controlled. It's very difficult. And again, but it takes practice. And the amount of people who came came back and actually said this, like you're talking about a, um, a group in the audience, about 50 people, and they're all serious coaches and coaching at all different levels. With vast experience, and, and that's that's what they do. The majority coaches just said, really nice when you're faced with a situation where you can feel it, and you can feel the tension building up, and you can see the sequence of plays coming in in front of you. That's the time to actually remain just a small bit calm and just breathe, nice big long breath. So, yeah, that's a <laughs> it is a good question, but it it is remarkable when you actually see people on the sideline who can be absolutely calm. And then at particular times, they're just going to not quite lose it completely. But, uh, you know, you know that sometimes things don't don't go as uh, as planned. Yeah, no, I think it's um, it's that's like such a practical takeaway. Anyone listen has now. So, OK, plan for different scenarios that are going to come up. Um, but even still, if you can just get it into your head not to react or not to go crazy, just take a breath, count to five and then let yourself react and, 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 and get to grips again with yourself. So like, that's a, that's a fantastic takeaway. Um, just to touch on, um, the work you do in coach education in, because I was fascinated by, um, one of your papers where it highlights the, the extra learning that people get or that, that they continue developing in their coaching pathway, but it's through a social group that they've made friends or that they've made, um, whether it's a community of practice or, or that that they've made during a formal coach education but you talk about that the informal learning continues beyond could you tell us a little bit about that please yeah i think it, it's uh it's really interesting and again uh, i think coach education and coach how coaches develop is really uh evolving and it's evolving as most things are these days it's evolving very quickly um and we were very much much geared towards the formal education process of here's a curriculum that we have to deliver. Uh, there, it's a step-by-step -step process. You have to attend a course for a particular number of hours and then you get your badge. Coaches don't always like to do that. They don't have the time to attend all these formal sessions. Um, and what they prefer to do now is to try and work uh, in an informal setting and uh, this is it. This is invaluable. And like I mentioned earlier, what you learn from watching somebody else do it um, in, a, in an applied setting, actually see them uh, interact with, with their athletes in a different way um, is, is hugely informative. Like we learn from our playing experience or experience as athletes in sport, and we take that away. Um, so coaches learn in different ways and, and they're or a variety of different that that formal curriculum way, the informal ways through workshops or listening to podcasts, um, and then there is this entirely uh, non-formal where you're you're talking about uh, cups of coffee with a variety of different people, and you meet your mates and you're you're chatting about um, a book you've just read or or and what you think it is, and it, it's it's a completely um, safe and. and it's not really a safe environment, but it's just it's not even connected to to coaching. 
yet you just start talking about the, the things that interest you. Um, one of the things that we we do, as you know, I, I'm involved in uh, applied sports coaching masters in, in UL, and we have a module on athlete and coach development. And part of what the coaches have to do, or the, the, sorry, the students, the, the students are all coaches. Um, what, what the students have to do is they've got to work uh, in a small group. And one of them is the coach. And uh, somebody comes in and has a look at uh, the coach in practice, uh, one of the other members of the group, and they give them feedback on their coach behavior, on their questioning style and the different behaviors they do. And then the final member of the group acts as the mentor. So it's the conduit between uh, the consultant and the coach and to feedback and how are we going to use the information that the consultant just gave us to actually apply that in practice? How are we going to work together to affect change? And the real benefit of this is, is the, the coaches are, tend to be from different sports. So you're going around um, and you're coaching a 14-year-old gymnast or you're coaching uh, a 13-year-old basketball player uh, or uh, a 15-year-old swimmer. And effectively, it doesn't matter what sport you're playing, it's the person in front of you that's that's really important. And, and whether it's a 14-year-old basketball player, athlete uh, in, in cross-country athletics, gymnastics, tennis, golf, swimming, rugby, it's still a 14-year-old person. And it's how you deal with those situations and bouncing ideas off each other and helping each other in that non-formal setting is really important. And, and I think... Um, one of the, the real advantages of, of working like this is that you get everybody benefits from going to see somebody else coaching, actually helping some somebody coach with no knowledge of the sport, because it's not a like uh, whatever sport we're in, we have that that knowledge of the sport, but it's other people's uh, ability to talk to you about how to coach is the critical part of this, and it doesn't matter what sport you're in, you're still coaching the person and how you deal with that person. Um, and sometimes when we, we analyze and reflect on how we coach, we tend to analyze and reflect on the athlete performance without looking at our, our own performance as coaches. So having somebody else come in and help us out um, to, to remind us about how we coach, as you asked earlier on, how our body language um, can be interpreted by the athletes we're dealing with, how our body language might differ from what we're actually saying or trying to communicate, and just getting some feedback on, on those situations. And that's very difficult to get through the formal coach education process, um, but to, to get it in, a, in an informal or non-formal situation is um, is really beneficial. I think coaches really like to do that. Uh, so it's rather than going once a year to a big formal coach education program you're actually getting trip fed this in weekly monthly chunks which yeah. is uh just keeps uh keeps you on on track so in basically what you're describing is an informal method of learning through a formal structure if if you want if, if you want for a better of a word um and I, I think it's really interesting so we've spoken an awful lot about coaching behavior and our own behavior as coaches and and um like observing yourself as in if you could record yourself or listen back to yourself, how will you how would you deliver the feedback? But then having someone else to come in and observe you and then be able to give you tips. So that works for both. Yes. So the person receiving the feedback gets an, an impartial view and then the person who's actually out there goes, oh, that's something I could bring into my own coaching. Yeah, I think it's one of the really, um, really important aspects uh, is to have this have a group of people, a support network of people um, who can actually give you feedback. But when you, when you think about it, as a coach, you're standing there asking players to to do stuff to help them improve. What are you actually doing? Who's coaching you? And one of the ways that you can actually get uh, get better at your coaching is to have somebody come along and observe you coaching and give you feedback. Um, as the observer, you get to see other people coach in different ways and, and you learn from that. But then you're you're analyzing their behavior that you can use yourself, but then giving them feedback on what you observe. So it does it, it's a it's a two-way thing that that really helps everybody. 
um, in that context. And I, like, I think it's it's one of the really important aspects of learning and developing as coaching uh, or as coaches is that you actually reflect on what you do and try to make yourself better as a coach so that you can improve the situation for uh, the group of people or, or uh, athletes that you're coaching. Yeah, so, okay, my mind is spinning here now because there's loads of different avenues that could go down. So do you then... So how do we get around this problem? Uh, so if two, sorry, if two questions, right? Um, one, um, if I am a coach and I know you are coming to look at me in um, my um, potential to, do I change my behavior? Um, I, I suppose that's my first question. And my second question then is, I suppose more broadly, if 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 the informal if coaches are telling us that informal is what they prefer if we're seeing better results from that informal sort of networking and learning how do we go about our coach education as a global thing and how do we knit them together so i know that's two, two one small question and one big question but um what do you think so uh, I presume you're going to invite me back for the next three podcasts to answer that second question. So thanks very much for that. Uh, for the the first one, uh, the first one, uh, it's it's a really great question because <laughs> um, it's like the the teacher and the inspector coming into the class, and the teacher says, "Now be on your best behavior now because this is happening." You you don't want it to change behavior, uh, and it can be quite um create quite some anxiety for a coach when you actually think this this person is going to come in now and examine me and there's going to be a microscope on on what i do and that's not what this is about this is actually this peer observation is is a huge uh learning tool that's used in education for years and years and it, it's done in an agreed in an agreed setting that we're here to help each other and when you have that agreement right from the start you kind of say, look, this is me. What's the point in changing your behavior to suit what you think somebody else wants if it's not actually what you do all the time? You need to be you when you're there and then to get feedback. And the person is not there to to cut you to pieces. You're there in an agreed format to help each other. So I think that that's really important that you get a person um, who you can trust, who's going to give you uh, valuable feedback on particular areas that you might even agree before before the session starts. Um, I was quite apprehensive when I was approaching coaches to take part in this because um, I was aware that this may be, you know, um, a bit sort of daunting for people. And the fact that I actually asked them to wear uh, a microphone, um, it could be quite noticeable. But it takes about five minutes and the research will tell you as well. It takes about five minutes and everybody's back to normal. So <laughs> okay. uh, it, it, it is like the behavior doesn't change. But I think it's key if you, if you go to the trouble of actually organizing somebody to come in to, um, to observe you and give you feedback so that you can improve as a coach. Try to be yourself as much as possible. Don't change to try and meet somebody else's needs. You, you won't improve them. Okay, um, excellent answer to the first one. On to the second one now. <laughs> okay, okay. What was the second question <laughs> about the? Yeah. Uh, so how do we? How do we? How do we? Tie how do we in, change coach education? Well, how do we tie the formal and the informal? Because and I know I'm not expecting a, a, an answer, but it's something that's come up a few times. Yeah. I myself and Niall talk about an awful lot, and it, it's it's not there's not I don't think there's an easy answer because I get that we'd need some sort of formal accreditation and I get there has to be some yes. sort of formal process. Um yeah. but at the same time, everything is sort of now telling us that the informal is is is, is, is a bit more effective. So how do we how do we blend the two? Yeah, yeah. So um I, I think one of the great things is uh the the formal process that exists at the moment is really beneficial uh, for early career coaches. Um, the the knowledge that they gain about the sport and about what to coach at particular levels, I think, is really valuable. And, and coaches have acknowledged that as well. Like the, the the formal process is very useful. It's when you start when you have that professional knowledge of the game. It's then. Uh, understanding how to apply that in different situations, 
where it, it takes a bit more ongoing. And, and to put it in context, if, if you go to a, a coaching course, a formal coach education course um, at, at, a high, at a higher level, level three or level four, um, where you're looking at kind of the top end performance of so the coaches who are who are working at the in in performance level and even high performance that you have to wonder about the effectiveness of those coaching courses if say I go and take a, a course in August my season begins in September and I get a follow-up from that course in January or February just because of the volume of of coaches on the course it's January or February that that I get a follow-up on it. How am I to know, or how do the people who run these courses know that the coaches that the coaching course has been a success if there's been four months between the course and uh, the observation of the coach in practice, which a, a lot of these uh, courses follow this process? Um, was the coaches, uh, even if the coach is doing a great job in February when the observation takes place, was it because of the coaching course or even that they've learned in between? So um, it, the, the easiest way and the most difficult way to do it is constant drop-ins throughout regular, short, little visits, meetups, informal get-togethers, a phone call here and there, uh, how are you getting on, what's, uh, what issues are you having, what's going well, uh, how can I be of help? Some little drop-ins for that. Now, this is a, a big question on resources, and there quite simply may not be resources to, to facilitate everybody. I, I understand that completely. Um, but the more of these uh, little drop-in visits over a cup of coffee about what's going well, or even having somebody, a resource where somebody might be at the end of the phone to do that, I think that, that would be uh, a really successful way to do it. Uh, I don't think that the coach education system uh, is is doing too badly at the moment, particularly when the acknowledgement, and, and this is like from the research that I have done, the acknowledgement from coaches about uh, the early stage coaching courses are really meeting the needs of, of the coaches, which which is important to acknowledge as well. So I think there's a place for, for mixing that. I think what we've learned over the last 14 or 15 months about the use of the online space, I think that has, uh, that will feature strongly I think in future um, about recorded sessions that coaches can drop into uh, in time um, whenever that whenever they want to and just have this resource bank um, of valuable um, coaching tips I think would be really important yeah, in time. Uh, definitely and, and I know even from chatting just before we started recording we were talking about the, the world becoming smaller in terms of being able to access resources from from all over um, Ian, you've been fantastic with your time. So we have three questions that we ask everybody uh, towards the end of the, the show. Um, so the first one, what does the term successful coaching mean to you? There's two words that get you out of jail whenever you're asked this question, and it, it depends are the two words. So I'm going to do that. Um, I suppose this depends on the, the objectives that you have uh, with the group of athletes you're working on. So I think the genuine perception of what is success is always people have this trophy in their mind. And that, that's not always the case if you're coaching at uh, an under 13 or under 14 level, where the, the objective is participation. It's about having fun. It's about getting kids coming back. And I think if you can, uh, if you have all the players or all the athletes who started with you come back to you at the end of the season or come back again next year, I think you've probably met your objective and you've been a successful coach. Um, if you have every come, everybody coming back, if you're at a performance level or even a high performance level where the, the objective is to win, to get trophies or be in the mix every single year, then I think that's a successful coach. But when you look at um, high profile coaches who are um, making more money from getting fired and getting rehired and fired again, then maybe from a financial perspective, that's a very successful coach who keeps getting fired and keeps getting paid off. So um yeah that's a, that's the it depends that's an excellent uh slant on that question that i never thought of before i like that one um the best book or resource doesn't have to be a book but the best resource you'd recommend to uh to any coach i've uh 
I suppose the most recent one um, that I have read, and I read uh, a book called Alone on the Wall, which is a story about a free climber called Alex Honnold. And it goes together with a movie called Free Solo. Um, if you can get your hands on either, um, it's no pun intended. It's absolutely gripping. Um, you know the outcome uh, of it at the end. And even if you know the story, you're watching it with absolutely palpitations uh, watching it. It's about the, the guy who climbed with no ropes um, up 3,000 feet of rock in Yosemite National Park. It, it It's fantastic for understanding uh, the hard work that goes into getting where he got to, which is the, the top of the mountain. Um, the planning that goes through uh, this guy's mind in terms of detailed planning. I used to think I was a good planner and at, at times I, I was micromanaging and micro planning to uh, really bad levels. But when, if you don't plan properly from a coach's perspective uh, in Alex Honnell's world, he dies. Um, if we go out onto a soccer pitch or a rugby pitch, we're not going to die if we, if we don't plan and stuff that this guy will. His planning is unbelievable. It also gives you great insight into the mind uh, of a, a high-performance athlete, um, but and it, it tells you about um, how driven he was. It looks at the achievement. Um, it looks about risk and about the level of preparation that he invested into this climb meant that when he was climbing, he actually just knew his preparation was right and... Um, he, there were there were no consequences. He was just going to do it, and it's an extraordinary read. Um, and the the movie is just as good. I wouldn't like to have been filming it, as uh, all I can say, with the view that at any stage this guy actually just might fall off. So yeah, fantastic. Uh, really, really worth it. Really worth I, it. Yeah, I have I have seen the movie, but I didn't know there was a book, so it'll be on my list now. Um, last question. Oh, you have it there and everything. Don't mess, but we don't have video for everyone, but a uh, nice prop Ian had in the background there. That's that's very well placed. Um, so uh, the last question for you, Ian, um, and I know you may have uh, touched on some of this, but that's absolutely fine. But your top tips for a developing coach, what would you like people, what would you like to leave people with today? I think the first thing is to spend time uh, getting to know the people you're working with. I think that's really important. Um, build a relationship, um, build trust, create that environment where um, the people you're you're coaching, uh, the people you're working with, uh, if you if you have assistant coaches or, or other people, parents even, um, build that relationship so that everybody knows what's going on and you can all work in the same direction. I think that's really important, and I think. Uh, when you allow that to happen, I, th I think um, everybody takes responsibility and really strives to to achieve the objectives for um, for the for the greater good of everybody involved. I think that's really important. Is actually spending time to to get to know people is the first one. Um, the the second tip would be to reflect and to reflect on on how you coach, not just on the performance uh, and how the session went from an athlete performance perspective, but Reflect on on how you coach, uh, how the session went from you, what you said, how you said it, and how you can make it better uh, for the next time, um, to to make sure the athletes uh, enjoy it more. And that that doesn't matter at what level you're at, uh, whether it's just it's at the the high performance level or the uh, participation level. It's how you coach. Reflect on how you coach and how you can get that message across uh, better. And I suppose the last one is, is if you get the opportunity to go and uh, look at somebody else coaching um, in another team or in another sport, uh, I would recommend that you that you really expand beyond your sport uh, to see what you can learn from other people. That's a great answer and I think a, a great way to leave it. Um, Ian, if people want to find out more about the, the Masters that you do, where can they find out? Uh, they can... Uh, just a, a simple search engine uh, by going to the Masters in Applied Sports Coaching, uh, University of Limerick, uh, Physical Education, Sports Science Department. Um, if you type that in, it should come up top of the list. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Um, 
Ian, it's been fantastic having you on. Uh, as I said, you've been on the on the list for a while, um, but I think there's loads of people uh, to take away today, like the, the simple things about learning from other sports, other coaches, uh, empowering athletes and, and providing that safe environment. I really like your, your questioning, the, uh, probing for the consequences. I really like that. I'm going to try and remember that one myself. Um, the, the breed and count to five or 10 and, and, and stay calm. And then just the overall message of, of learning from others and talking to others, whether that be informal over a coffee or chatting to coaches, but just don't be afraid to learn from others and push on. So Ian, thanks a million for coming on. Pleasure to be here, Stephen. Appreciate it. Thanks.